Well, tonight we are in part two of our study on the Holy Spirit. And as noted this morning, the, there's been an imbalance perhaps in some churches. And so we're here to restore that balance by means of the Word of God and by the grace of God. So the goal today is to bring biblical understanding and balance to the Spirit's purpose and work as revealed in the Scripture. But before we begin, let's ask God and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we do, we do thank you for the privilege of handling your word. We thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. And yet, Lord, we fear that we would be up here merely expounding the words of men and leaving it at that. We pray that you would spare us from such a dreaded thought and pray that you might instead empower the ones, your servant and to empower those who are hearing that this might be indeed a life-changing time in hearing your word. We pray that you would descend upon us by your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would grant to us great measures of your spirit. Pray that we might be able to understand and keep attention and that you might build us up in the faith. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in our last message this morning, we saw that the Holy Spirit is God and that he's one with the Father and the Son. And we're going to buttress that uh, assertion again Tonight, Lord willing, and the Holy Spirit is a person. That was the second part of our message this morning. Now tonight, we'll focus our attention on the Spirit's role in the salvation of sinners. Now Jesus' purpose on earth, the reason he came, was to save his people from their sins. This is what the angel told Joseph when Mary was pregnant. He told her that which is conceived of in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So this is the reason he's coming. Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is his purpose in coming. And then, how is he going to accomplish that? Well, not only by preaching the gospel, but by offering himself up on a cross. So therefore, he says in John 12, What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, and that is the hour of his death. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So the purpose of Christ is to save his people and then to get there at the cross in order to fully accomplish that purpose. Well, the Spirit plays a vital role in fulfilling Jesus' purpose on earth. We heard this morning that he came to glorify Christ. How's he going to glorify Christ and why is he one with Jesus Christ in accomplishing this great purpose of saving sinners from their sins. Well, it's because he's one with Jesus Christ. He's one in purpose. 
He's one in objective. He's one in working with Christ because they are both God. Now, how is he going to do this? Well, that's the question we're going to answer tonight. How is the Holy Spirit working with Christ in order to save his people from their sins? Well, the first main point is that the Holy Spirit's, we'll look at the Holy Spirit's role in Christ's public ministry on earth. Secondly, the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit living in Christ's people. And then, Lord willing, we'll have a few applications at the end. So let's look first at the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus Christ's public ministry on earth. As I've already mentioned, he was there, the Holy Spirit, at Jesus' birth. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit that impregnated Mary. Mary uh, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow, will overshadow you. Do, you. do you see that? That the Spirit is power? So he's using that Hebrew parallel, parallelism. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. God is impregnating Mary, so God is the Father of Jesus Christ. That's basically what he's saying. So the Holy Spirit is there at Jesus' birth, playing a vital role in his appearance on earth as a man. So now let's look at Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3. So Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. So look at what's happening here. We have the Trinity at work at Jesus' baptism. This is like his initiation of his public ministry on earth. So it says that Jesus is there being baptized, right, by the John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And then we hear God the Father's voice. So you see, they're all working in union together. They're all working together as one. They're all, they're all God. Three persons of the Trinity working together, doing the miraculous, as we'll see in a little bit. So this is the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Now turn to Luke chapter 4. And we see that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. So the first thing he does 
And Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 4, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is there working with Jesus throughout his ministry. And he's there at the beginning as he heads into the wilderness. He returned from the Jordan. So he comes from the Jordan River where he was baptized and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. Now Jesus succeeds in thwarting Satan's effort to get him to compromise and to sin. And as a result, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the region surrounding all, throughout all the surrounding district. So here he is coming from the wilderness. The Spirit's still with him. And the Spirit is filling him so that he comes in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then in verse 16, we see the Spirit initiating his public speaking ministry. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And I just pause to say, notice Jesus' commitment to the public gathering of God's people. It says it was his custom to be in the synagogue with God's people. Now, he didn't have a checklist. That said, oh, wait wait a minute, i got to get to church so I can fulfill the checklist, and then I go to church, and then I check it off, and now I'm good to go. That's not Jesus's, that, that's not his perspective. He goes to the public gathering of God's people, you know why? Because he wants to be there. Nobody has to persuade him, nobody has to push him, nobody has to twist his arm to get there. He goes there because he loves God's people. And he loves his church. As we uh, were talking over dinner last night, I think it was Mary Jo that said, there's a whole big difference between a churchgoer and a Christian. Big difference. In any case, it was his custom as he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, and now he's quoting from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now is is it the Spirit or is it the Lord that's upon him? Yes, (laughs) it's both. Yes, it's the Spirit of the Lord that's upon him. The Spirit's upon him and the Lord's upon him. They're one in purpose. And what's the Spirit on him to do? To preach the word. To preach the gospel. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Do you see the central purpose, the central uh, importance of the word of God? 
This is what Jesus was prepared to do and what the Spirit is moving him to do is to preach the word. So God is ordained from the beginning to use the simple words. Simple so that a child can understand the gospel and be saved. But yet complex so you could study it all your life intensely and get just scratch the surface. It's the nature of God's word. But the Lord is using his word and has ordained to use his word to save sinners and to grow his people. And Jesus understood that, and that's why he's proclaiming to them Isaiah 61 and telling them, the Spirit is upon me to preach the word. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So that's the Holy Spirit. So, that's not all. Not only does the Spirit go with Christ as he's preaching the word throughout his ministry, but the Spirit is also there when he gets to his chief goal to fulfill him saving sinners from their sins by getting to the cross. So I'll have you turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And there could be a whole many, whole lot of things I could say regarding the Spirit's role and Jesus' ministries, he goes from one place to another, but for the sake of time, uh, we're kind of jumping to his sacrifice on the cross. It's just one verse, and I referred to it this morning, but let's look at it a little more closely. In verse 14 of chapter 9 of Hebrews, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And as you may know from the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the great high priest, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he is there at the cross, not as a victim, Not as Reverend Moon says, they they got him before he was able to accomplish what he wanted to. And so Reverend Moon has to step in and take up where Jesus failed. No, he was there at the cross for a specific purpose, to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. He's the priest, the high priest, offering himself to the Father by the Spirit. That's what it says, through the eternal Spirit. All three are again working together. Do you see it? It's Jesus Christ offering as a high priest himself. He's the sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's working with the Spirit who's helping him to offer himself to the Father. So the Father is all part of this. At that moment he's on the cross, the Father is receiving him, his offering. And what's he doing? Cleansing the conscience of sinners to serve the living God. Amen. Well, that brings us to the second main point of our message. That is, 
the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. So we see the Holy Spirit working with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now we see the Holy Spirit working in sinners. So this is how he's working with Christ to save his people from their sins. So the Spirit regenerates those for whom Christ died. Everyone whom Christ died for, the Spirit will awaken them from the dead. And so Jesus describes this, what's called in theological terms, regeneration, or the new birth. So they're synonyms. So turn to John chapter 3. You may have guessed that I might head here. If you're familiar with the idea of the new birth, John chapter 3. I'm not going to read the entire passage, but I'll cite a a few verses here. In this chapter, Jesus describes being born again. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And of course, the background is that Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, he comes at night. Probably because he knew that his fellow Pharisees were against Jesus and were trying to trip him up or trying to accuse him of things. And so he's he's convicted, apparently, to some degree, so that he sneaks along at night so that nobody sees him. And then he starts asking Jesus a bunch of questions. And Jesus immediately turns it around to him and says, you must be born again. Okay? So this is what he says. Now what does it mean to be born again, regenerated? Well, it means that he who is dead to the spiritual world is given spiritual life in order to see the spiritual world around him. Recall that I had quoted 1 Corinthians 2, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. But when the Spirit comes and causes a man to be born again, now he does accept the things of the Spirit of God. Suddenly, he has eyes to see the spiritual world around him. He may have been confronted with the idea of the spiritual world around him, but he just didn't pay any attention to it. He didn't care. He may have heard of the Holy Spirit. He may have heard of the of the Satan and, and the Son attacking one another in this spiritual realm, the warfare going on, but he, he was ho-hum, so what, whatever. Or maybe he knew something about it, that there was something there that he needed to be a part of, but he didn't want to take that step because he's afraid of commitment. You know, if I, if I pursue this idea of the spiritual world, you know, I don't want to go there because I got better things to do in this world. You know, Sometimes that's what happens. So they know there's something out there, but they don't believe it enough to commit their lives to that spiritual world. But when the spirit comes, their eyes are open and suddenly they have an insatiable desire to be digging into that spiritual realm. So that's what happens when a man is born again. He's given new spiritual life. He's given a physical life. All men are given a spiritual life. 
Only some men are given a spiritual life. So he's given life to see. He can now see the spiritual world. He finds himself loving Christ. Suddenly. Suddenly he has a desire for God's word. I can remember when I was uh, first converted. And I went to Albany Baptist Church. Somebody invited me there. And I was kind of hunkered down in the back. You know, I didn't want anyone to notice me. You know, And uh, so I was hearing Dean Allen preaching the word. And, and he was going through Romans. And, and uh, boy, I just couldn't get enough of it. And somebody at the end of the service came up to me and gave me a New Testament. It was a New Testament, one of those pocket New Testament NASBs. And he gave it to me. Well, whatever, for whatever reason, and believe me, prior to, there was no way I'm reading them. Anyway, <laughs> I get this book. I couldn't put it down. It's like I'm, I'm just reading. I, I just couldn't get enough of this. And I, and I saw, look at that verse. Oh, that's where that comes. I've heard that before. You know, I just couldn't stop reading this thing. Well, what's the difference? It's certainly not me. I was, I, I was deep in my sin at the time. It was the Holy Spirit. He makes the difference. He gets the glory. God gets the glory. It's God's Spirit. He loves his people. Suddenly, the man who's born again. He loves the worship. All of a sudden, he wants to go to church. You don't have to bribe him. You don't have to command him, that we got to get to church. No, you don't have to do that for somebody who's born again. Now, granted, we have remaining sin. And I know what it's like to get up and you're not feeling that great. You know, you're good enough to go to church. But, you know, it's like, I'd really like to just lay here for a while. And, and I understand that. And that happens to even Christians. But that aside, there is a general desire to want to be with God's people if you're a true Christian. Well, a new sinner is made a new person in Christ. An old sinner is made a new person in Christ. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, how the Bible describes it. Old ungodly friends, entertainments, and practices are out. New loves, a new desire to please God and serve him are in. This is what happens to a man who's born again. It's a miraculous work. And what happens can't be explained by the natural realm. It's supernatural. Listen to Mr. Spurgeon. We'll be quoting him quite a bit tonight. This change takes place instantaneously. He's talking about regeneration. It is as miraculous a change as any miracle of which we read of in Scripture. It is supremely supernatural. It may be mimicked, but no imitation of it can be true and real. Men may pretend to be regenerated, but without the Spirit, they cannot be. It is a change so marvelous that the highest attempts of man can never reach it. We may reason as long as we please, but we cannot reason ourselves into regeneration. We may meditate until our hairs are gray with study, but we cannot meditate ourselves into the new birth. That is worked in us by the sovereign will of God alone. 
urgent. Another way that the Bible describes being born again is we're given a new heart to love what we once hated or ignored. I will give you a new heart, it says in Ezekiel, and I will remove their heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. It's called circumcision of the heart. You can keep your finger in John chapter 3, and, or you can just listen if you don't want to get lost in these different verses. But in Romans chapter 2, it talks about this idea of circumcision of the heart, which I believe is the true antitype of circumcision of the flesh. In any case, in verse 28, we notice here that the apostle is instructing us on how Israel is being transformed. It's now the new Jew, who is no longer a national Jew, but a Christian. So we who are, Jew, we who are Christians are the new Jews. So in verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Do you see the difference? So we are of the circumcision of the heart, and who does that work? By the Spirit. That's what it says. So the non-Christian has a heart of stone. He's dead in his trespasses and sins into the spiritual world. He won't savingly come to Christ because he can't savingly come to Christ. It's impossible what it means to be totally depraved. It's, that you're, it's not that every single thing in your body is sinful, but in you, the, you just can't do good. There's none who does good, no, not one. We must be born again before we can savingly come to Christ. Being born again is not something that happens after you believe, but something that happens so you can believe. That's an important point. Many Christians, many especially in the Arminian camp, they, they will say, well, you see, first you believe, you have a little good in you, and, and then uh, that good kind of gets excited when it hears the word of truth. And, and so then once you hear the word and embrace it, then God causes you to be born again. Ah, no, I don't think so. And we'll hear from Spurgeon in a moment as we get there. So that brings us to the second point of this, is that the Holy Spirit is the means of being born again, as we've just seen in verses like Romans 2. As it says in Titus 3, we're saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting that I looked up a definition of God's grace, and I happened to look in Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, and this is what he says about the definition of God's grace. Okay? He says, it's the unmerited 
operation of God in the heart of man. The heart, circumcision of the heart. A new heart and a new spirit. The unmerited, unmerited operation of God in the heart of man affected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And I would say ultimately for the salvation of men. Ultimately. God's grace. So that's Burkhoff, page 427. So the Holy Spirit is the agent to give man spiritual life, to see his sin, and the ability to repent and believe the gospel. So as I mentioned or promised, I'm going to read Spurgeon on this. He says this, The first thing then that God the Holy Spirit does in the soul is to regenerate it. Now regeneration quickens the sinner and makes him live. He is not competent to have true spiritual conviction worked in him until, first of all, he has received life. It is true that one of the earliest developments of life is conviction of sin. But before any man can see his need of a savior, he must be a living man. Before he can really, I mean in a spiritual position, in a saving, effective manner, understand his own deep depravity, he must have eyes with which to see the depravity. He must have ears with which to hear the sentence of the law. He must have been quickened and made alive, otherwise he could not be capable of feeling, seeing, or discerning at all. So we must have the Holy Spirit to awaken us to our sin. The natural man doesn't care about his sin unless it has some earthly consequence. And he might have some guilt feelings about it, but he just stuffs it under the rug. But a true man of God, once he's alivened by the Spirit, all of a sudden, and uh, there's this guy at, at church back in Albany who's been coming recently. And uh, it's the guy I was telling you about. And he's been coming now for months and been faithful every Sunday, except for when he was sick. Coming to all the services, prayer meeting, he's on our prayer meeting. And he told me when, when, he, the way, when he got saved, he went into the church, somebody invited him, and, and believe me, he was steeped in sin from an external standpoint, much deeper than many of us might have been. And he walked in and the preacher preached the gospel. And I don't know what church he went to, it was down in the city, but he said he just wept. He just wept over his sins. He was, he was grieved at what he had done in his life. And, <clears throat> and he, just, he said he wept like a baby. Now, does it, is that necessary for everybody to have said, I wept like a baby when they were born again? No. We can, we can be grieved intensely on the inside and not necessarily cry. So we can't have these external signs that, oh, yeah, yeah, I know he was saved because he cried. No, not necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of emotional things that can get us to cry, right? It could be the playing just as I am for the eighth time and then, <laughs> right? But that doesn't mean we're saved or that the Spirit is causing us to be born again. But it can be an indication because it has been the testimony of many people that tears 
welled up in their eyes or they just the grief of their sin is so great that they just can't bear it and so they just break down well in any case in any case the holy spirit comes upon men and awakens them to their sin and then makes them alive it kind of reminds me of the bones in Ezekiel. <clears throat> Do you remember that passage in Ezekiel? It's Ezekiel 37, where there's these, this valley, and it says there were many bones laying there in the valley. And they were dry bones. And as Ezekiel is standing there, God tells, them, tells him, speak to those bones. And what happens, he he speaks to those bones and suddenly there is sinew in, in their bones, connecting the bones. And next thing you know, there's flesh on those bones. And next thing you know, these guys come to life. And so he speaks the word and raises the dead. Just like that. Some people ask, uh, well, how is God going to... Uh, get me to heaven in a new body and everything when, you know, I, I got cremated and I'm thrown in the ocean or something. Huh. Well, if God can send his spirit onto Ezekiel to speak to bones, and, and my guess is those bones, if it's in warfare, they may have been scattered all over the valley. The same guy. has got one bone over there, one guy, one bone over there. Next thing you know, they're together and they've got sinews and they've got flesh. And next thing you know, they're walking around. God, it's God that's for God. This is if he spoke the world into existence. Do you think he can't get our, our dust and make them into man? That's how he made man in the first place anyway. In any case, that's the way it describes being born again, just like Ezekiel's bones, only in a spiritual realm. So he speaks to us, and next thing you know, we're alive. We have new spiritual life. Dead before, alive now. Well, so we have Jesus describing the new birth and the Holy Spirit is the means of the new birth. Thirdly, being born again is necessary for salvation. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. It's like George Whitfield. They kept asking him, Mr. Whitfield, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep saying you must be born again? And he turned and said, Yes, sir, because you must be born again. So that's what <clears throat> is spoken here of. In verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Well, that brings us to our third main point of the message tonight. The Holy Spirit living in Christ's people. So we saw the Holy Spirit working with Jesus in his public ministry on earth. We saw the Holy Spirit working in a sinner to make him to be born again. 
Now we see the Holy Spirit given to sinners to live in them for the rest of their days, even through eternity. The Spirit not only awakens us to new life, but abides in all Christians to help them to live for God. The Spirit is given to live in believers. Now, how does the Bible describe the permanent giving of the Spirit to regenerated Christians? Well, there's some gray area here, I'll I'll admit that, but let me just propose a few of the ways it's described in the Scriptures. First, the Spirit is the promise made to believers in Christ. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You might want to turn there. In verse 33, you recall again, as we mentioned this morning, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And he's convicting the, especially the Jews there, of their sin in putting to death Jesus Christ. And in verse 33, he says, Therefore, describing Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So what does he call the promise? Well, the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Right? Then in verse 37, we see Peter, uh, in verse 36 rather, he, we see Peter telling them that they put to death both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, and they're convicted of their sin, and they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. And I would suggest that he's saying this to these multitude of Jews that were there and that not every Jew was saved. There were thousands that were, as we find out later, but there were many that weren't. So you can't say that he's making a promise that everybody present is going to be saved and all their children are going to be saved. That's not what he's saying. I believe what he's saying is that the promise is available for you and for your children. And then he defines who are going to be the recipients of that promise, all who are far off, those are the Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So it's those who are called that will receive the promise and will be converted. That's basically what I believe he's saying. In any case, the promise is the Holy Spirit. This is the promise made to those who would believe, who would repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 says, So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus stands at the Feast of Booths and he says 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So the promise is made to those who believe on Jesus Christ. Those who have put their trust and faith in him. Now, of course, the spirit had to be working in them to regenerate them so that they would believe. For Faith is a gift as well. And then he gives the Holy Spirit permanently to those who do believe, whom he regenerated. Well, also the Bible describes giving of the Spirit, I believe, in being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus, John the Baptist said this of Jesus, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The same Spirit who awakens us to new life is the same Spirit who resides in believers. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now it is very possible that the baptism of the Holy Spirit covers both regeneration, and the permanent giving of the Spirit. Charles Hodge takes that position, and you can read his commentary on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, if you're interested. But the Bible also describes the giving of the Spirit as being sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's stamp upon us and guarantee that we are His and will endure to the end. A very encouraging idea. It says in Ephesians 4.30, as we read this morning, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we are sealed. It's like we have the stamp on us. He's going to be part of my kingdom and he will endure to the end. It's I'm his, he's mine, and he will endure. He's, we're in the palm of Jesus Christ's hand. We're in the palm of God the Father's hand. And John 10 it talks about both. Well, who, whose hand is it? Jesus Christ or God the Father's? Yes, it's, we're in both. And he and we puts us in his hand and we'll never be lost. We are in his hand for good. But we must endure to the end. That's the tension in scripture. And we have to leave it right there. God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge or down payment. First, Second Corinthians 1.22 God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge or down payment. We must add that Christ promises that his Spirit will be with us forever. From John 14 I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That is the paraclete, or the paracletus in, in Greek. right? It's the paraclete, the helper. It's a great translation, by the way, if you look it up. Paracletus is a helper, an assistant, that we may be with you forever. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. 
So the Spirit never leaves. He's with us forever. That's what it says. So we have the comfort that God is with us and he'll always be with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Isn't that what he promised? Yeah, but what if I sin and I blow it again? Well, God is still with us if we're true Christians. We need to run to the cross and find forgiveness. That's the answer. We can't get so discouraged. And I know what it's like, because I'm there too, that when we fail and we stumble and we fall back in that sin we thought that we were done with years ago maybe, that we just run to the cross and find cleansing. That's the hope of the Christian. If that isn't the hope of, if that isn't my hope, I'm done. If I don't have uh, forgiveness and washing for whatever it is, whether it's losing your temper, whether it's, uh, you know, saying stuff that you regret, whether it's not loving your wife or your husband, whatever it is, if we don't have cleansing, we're sunk. But we do have cleansing. And the God is with us. He doesn't leave us. He may withdraw for a season in terms of his felt presence, you know, as sometimes chastening, because whom he loves, he chastens. But he never leaves us or forsakes us. And he'll, he'll do that, being with us, in order to chasten us. Well, <clears throat> secondly, all Christians are given the spirit to live in them. Not just some Christians, not just the super spiritual Christians, which is the teaching of some in certain circles. It's not that certain people have the Spirit and other Christians do not. It's that all Christians. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to park here for a a bit. Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 8, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So what the Bible plainly teaches is that if we don't have the Spirit, it's not just that we'll be less spiritual than some of our brethren. It's that we don't know the, we don't have the Lord. Every Christian who has the Spirit has the Lord. And everyone who does not have the Spirit does not have the Lord. Couldn't be any plainer. Listen to Spurgeon says this, And truly, every Christian is a God-bearer because he has the Spirit. The Spirit of God is with him. Know you not that you you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Isn't that what we are? The temple of the Holy Spirit? And Paul is speaking to the Corinthians who are, in telling all of them, have it. It's not just the super spiritual ones. It's all the Corinthians. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
A man is no Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. He may speak well and understand theology. He may be a sound Calvinist. He may be a child of nature, finely dressed, but not a child of the living God. That's Spurgeon. Well, as Spurgeon emphasizes, the spirit living in us is evidence that we are God's children. Look at verse 30. Uh, 13, I'm sorry. Romans 8, 13. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit, you have the spirit, so now the spirit's working in you, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So this reemphasizes what we were just saying, is that if we have the Spirit of God living in us, we are sons of God. This is a great assurance to us. This is why he's given to us in part, to assure us that we're, we're his. But notice the work that he's doing in us. He's assisting us in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So you see, the work of the Spirit is not to just get us excited. Though we may get excited for the things of God. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But that can't be the emphasis. How do we feel when the Spirit, you know, that's not what he emphasizes here. He's emphasizing putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And if we don't, we're going to die. You see the tension? We're in God's hands. He's never going to let us go. He'll never leave us or forsake us. We'll endure until the end. You must put to death the deeds of the flesh or you're going to die. But then it says here in verse 14, those who are being led by the Spirit. Now notice what we're led to. We're led to putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Right? So we have to beware of that phrase, being led by the Spirit. Because this is very popular in certain circles. And even among, I would say, all evangelicals, not saying they all, every single one without except, I'm just saying all kinds of evangelicals <clears throat> fall into this thing. You know, the Spirit led me. And boy, it's hard to argue that. Well, you know, I woke up and I was groggy and, you know, I didn't feel the greatest. I could have gone to church, but, you know, but the Spirit just led me to stay home and just worship God in, in my own bedroom. Now, how are you going to argue with that? The Spirit led him. I mean, if the Spirit led him, it must be true. Yeah, the Spirit just led me to marry so-and-so. Well, I guess, how can you argue that? They're not a Christian, you know, and they're, you know, they don't have a job. But the Spirit led him. So how can you argue that, right? But be, beware, because that's not sound Biblical reasoning. And it's, it's just not sound. I wouldn't recommend and beware of that kind of thing. <clears throat> well, he helps us with our insurance and all of God's children must have the Spirit. That brings us to the third point here. The Spirit is given to live in us, in God's people. All Christians must have the Spirit. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit's work as he lives in Christ's people. What does he do when he's within us? Well, we've already seen he helps us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But if we 
look, step back, we can see that everything we are spiritually and every righteous thing we do as Christians is a result of the Holy Spirit's work in us. We work and do, that's true. We put to death the deeds of the flesh, but it's only because the Spirit is working in us. He gives the desire and the ability to do, do these things. We're in bad shape if we're trying to do this on our own without crying to God for help, without resting upon his spirit to do that work with us. And that's the work of sanctification. It's God working with the sinner to accomplish sanctification or holiness. Right? So he gives us the desire and ability, everything we need to live a life devoted to the Lord is available to us by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit works in us Christian graces. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are all from the Spirit. Right? So if we want to increase in our love for our husband or our wife, we want to increase in our love for the brethren. We go to God and we pray. Because it must be by the Spirit. But then we need to love them. <laughs> that's Bible. You see, that does, that's not logical. But that's the Bible. The Spirit provides the spiritual gifts. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We already quoted from this chapter about being baptized into one body, and that body is the local church, the universal church, but the universal church is always expressed in the local church. So 1 Corinthians 12 is admonitions, encouragements, and direction to the local church at Corinth. So we can't make that excuse. Well, I'm a member of the universal church, so you know I'm just going to worship on Sunday in a mountain. and no. Paul has got a design here. He established the church in Corinth and he's giving instruction to that very church. In verse 4, it says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So the subject of this chapter is that the Holy Spirit is giving gifts to men, different gifts, and each one is an important gift to the church, whether they even think it or not. And whether other people think it or not. Those whom we look at, who we say, ah, oh, they're not really contributing much. But they may be important. Maybe they're praying when you're not looking. Prayer is powerful. Maybe that person that you don't see doing a lot, you know, maybe they're not gardeners, or maybe they're not, uh, uh, wit you know, outgoing witness people. Maybe they're praying. Maybe they have the gift of prayer in the sense that every, every Christian should pray. So you can't say, well, I don't have the gift of prayer, so I'm just not going to pray. That do, no, that doesn't go. It's that we might not have the gift of prayer, like Luther praying for hours before we would start his day, but we need to pray. But there are people that have a special ability to pray you know, for lengthy times. And, and uh, anyway... Maybe that's what's happening with this person. So you never know the gift that God is using in individual Christians. 
And then verse 7, important verse, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 8, for to, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And then in verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So the Spirit is the author of these gifts. God's Spirit, Christ's Spirit, is in us, giving us these gifts, so that, why? So that we can brag we got it? No. So that we can just feel good because we've got the Spirit? No. So that we can go off in a room and tell people how much, uh, how spiritual we are? No. For the common good of the church what it says for the common good the reason we have spiritual gifts is for the good of others and this is the outgrowth of the spirit who gives spiritual who gives the gifts of the love joy peace right so he's giving us love for the brethren and giving us the gifts to express that love that's what's going on This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That we might love our brethren and join with them in serve. We're one body, that's what he says. We're baptized by the Spirit into one body. So we are more than just, you know, we see people on Sundays, hi, and then go off. No, we are one with them. And we are all one in Christ. So we have a common commonality that that is can't be uh, expressed in in other ways in this world. So that's why, with respect to those in Corinth who apparently had supposedly the gifts of tongues, that's why if there's no interpreter, those claiming to speak in tongues are to keep silent in the churches. First Corinthians fourteen twenty eight. Why? Because it's not about them. It's about the church. It's about ministering to the church. Well, the Spirit gives us the help and ability to grow spiritually, guiding us into the truth. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide us into all the truth. We learned this morning He's truth. And he will guide us into all the truth. Now, I think that has special application to the apostles, in my opinion. Maybe Pastor John can uh, dig a little more deeper as he goes through John chapter 16 and, and comment on that if he hasn't already. But I think he's, in the, he's speaking to his apostles and he's going, to, um, he's going to give them the gifts necessary to write scripture. And so he's going to guide them into all the truth so they're able to do that. But that's true of all creeds. the spirit of truth and he's in us. So I think that applies to us as well. Not that we'll have the same gifts as the apostles and the inerrant ability to write scripture, but we will have a guidance for the truth in us. So as we learn the, the word of God, as we Embrace the scriptures. We will be men and women of truth. 
And then to obey the Lord. The Spirit is given for us to obey Him. Ezekiel 36, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So He puts His Spirit so that we'll obey Him. Any success or growth in the Christian life, the credit goes to God through His Spirit. The Spirit gives us the help and resources to pray, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So even as we pray, the Spirit gives us the uh, desire to, to pray, to pray daily, or to pray without ceasing. Some people say, well, I don't see anything in the Bible that tells us we have to pray every day. Well, the <laughs> Okay, but how do you deal with, we're to pray at all times. Like Jesus commanded us. That's, I mean, if all times doesn't mean daily, I don't know what words mean. In any case, again, if we're born again, we don't have to twist people's arms to pray. They're going to want to commune with God. That's, that's their lifeline. Anyway, as we close tonight, just a few words of application. How are we doing on time? Oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry. I'll quickly... The wonders of our conversion. It's not just a slight improvement of character or a slight modification to our lives and schedule. It's a radical, miraculous, supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. He turned our lives upside down, altering the way we think and conduct our lives, changing our priorities and worldview. Secondly, How desperately we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, to grow in the fruits of the Spirit, to overcome sin in our lives, to endure to the end. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit helps us with our evangelism. We preach to sinners and we say, oh, this is just a hopeless thing. Look at at out there. Look at the people out there. Nobody is interested in, in the spiritual things. But if the Spirit causes them to be born again, they will have interest in spiritual things. And God hasn't told us in anything in Scripture that as long as this earth remains, that the gospel will go forth. And he's gathering his elect. So we believe that, yes, sinners will be saved, so we need not be discouraged. We plant and water. God causes the increase. It's not our business Though we might work on our approach and our presentation maybe, but it's not what does it. It's the Holy Spirit. Our job is just to preach the truth. As imperfect as we may do it, it's not, well, we just, if we would only have said it this way, or if if I had just mentioned this one verse, for surely he would have, no. If the Spirit comes. So we ought to do more, frankly, in our evangelism, we ought to be more, spend more time praying than working on our presentation. So we don't need gimmicks and we don't need ways to trick people into making a decision for Christ. Rather, we need the Spirit to come upon men and women. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit is a major player in our salvation. Of all we studied, the conclusion should be that the Spirit is focused on saving sinners and bringing them to eternal, to the eternal kingdom. And then fifthly, how can we be regenerated and get Christ's Spirit to live in us? Well, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. 
Not by signing up for tongues classes. Not by some preacher waving his hand over us. But by believing on Christ and his gospel. The scripture has shut up all men under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. And the promise is the Holy Spirit. By faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't know him today. If you're not born again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll have found yourself to be born again. But then, finally, by asking God, he must do the work in us not only to grow in the spirit within us and to have the spirit within us, to be born again. It says, Jesus says this, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We praise you for the Holy Spirit's work in us. We pray that everyone in this room, young, old, with every single one, would have the Holy Spirit and would live for Christ, glorify Christ as the Spirit does, and live for Christ and his church, and grow in holiness, grow in a love for the brethren, grow in all aspects unto Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen.